God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we glorify you this day. Lord, we have gathered in this place to worship you, to praise you and to adore you, to sing of the glories of your name and of your kingdom and of your beloved Son, whom we love so much. And God, we have gathered to uh, be exhorted by your word, to listen intently, to hear what you have said. Lord, that your word might impart life to us, indeed the bread of life, that we might live. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We ask that you would continue to grant us this freedom for many, many years and decades to come, should you tarry that long. And Lord, we just thank you for uh, all that you are to us and all that you're doing in our lives. We praise you, and we are filled with joy at the thought of you and at the thought of our salvation, God. It is so rich and wonderful, and we are grateful. Help us this morning as we look into these things in your word that you would help us to see clearly all that you have said to us concerning your coming, concerning the resurrection of the dead. Oh, Lord, such high and magnificent things we will talk about this morning. Help us to see clearly, God, these supernatural things, even with our natural hearts and minds. Lord, give us power by your spirit to grasp your truth. We honor you and we bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so that brings us to uh, uh, the passages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 and following. And of course, this is where we kind of dive off into the understanding of the second coming, of which Paul has been mentioning in every chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians up till now, there has been a mention of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And now what he's going to do is he's going to begin to describe it in more detail. Now it's not just a mention of the coming. It's not just a mention of that thing that we eagerly await. But now he's going to describe it in some detail. And not only that, but he gives uh, some chronology here. He gives an order of events that take place. And he, if you will, kind of opens a window so that we can uh, see several features that attend and accompany the second coming of Christ. Uh, before I dive into the text today, I want to give you some background. And I want to kind of stir up your uh, your thoughts about these matters in the scriptures, and I want to point you to some materials for your further study as well. I'm going to do that first. Um, these kinds of things are really helpful. This is four views of the end times. It's a little chart that's been created by Rose Publishing. You might be familiar with them, where they they basically talk about amillennialism and postmillennialism and premillennialism. And then they break premillennialism into two different camps. One is historic premillennialism and the other is dispensational premillennialism or if you will pre-tribbers and post-tribbers. Okay? 
but uh, helpful little chart. Gives a lot of the key features, tells you the difference very clearly and very concisely between these different positions, okay? Four views of the end times by Rose Publishing. This thing costs four bucks, okay? It is a tremendous help in understanding these things. I really like visual aids. They help me a lot. It's got charts and stuff on it. And, uh, the little charts and descriptions on post-millennialism in here are very helpful. Okay. If a lot of people are interested in that, I will order those and save on the shipping. Just come talk to me. Talk to Fief. She will help you get one of those. This is probably the my favorite chart on the end times that I've ever seen. This comes out of the back of the book called The Sign by Robert Van Campen. It's actually in the book. When you buy the book, you get this chart. And uh, there are so many biblical events that are on this thing, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to fathom. But this kind of helps you to see how much of Scripture is actually involved with the fulfillment of end-time events. And, and this thing really here only covers a span of about, uh, well, the first... 80% of this chart covers the span of about 10 years with all these events. And then, of course, from there forward is the thousand-year millennial reign at the end. Okay? Anyway, very... Spell his last name. V-A-N-K-A-M-P-E-N. Van Campen. Okay? The Sign is the name of the book. Um, he is one of the guys that... Um, popularized a view called pre-wrath rapture, along with another guy by the name of Marv Rosenthal. Okay? Both of these guys are historic premillennialists. In other words, they're premillennial and they're post-tribulational. Okay? But this position, they, they coined a term called pre-wrath. It's actually a pretty popular position in premillennialism. And the best description of that position is this little book right here. The pre-wrath rapture position explained plain and simple. Okay? He also has another book, and the book that I recommend that you read that is his is called The Rapture Question Answered. The Rapture Question Answered, plain and simple. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a discussion of the Olivet Discourse, primarily is what it is. Um, Robert Van Campen. One thing I would warn you about, he has some views that I don't agree with, and I just want to point that out to you. For example, he believes that the Antichrist is actually Hitler and he's going to be resurrected. Of course, that's a popular thing among dispensational premillennialists as well. Um, but uh, uh, nevertheless, he, he says some things like that and is pretty dogmatic about them. Whereas, um, you know, I don't think the text uh, gives us those kinds of clues, although it does talk about Antichrist having a fatal wound that gets healed. Uh, we don't necessarily know exactly <clears throat> who that is or how that applies. You with me? So, if you will, there's some things in there that uh, would point you to that uh, maybe a little beyond the scope of what Scripture might teach. This is a good book. I've recommended it before. The, Me the Meaning of the Millennium. It's uh, edited by Klaus, but it's actually four different authors arguing their position on the millennium. So uh, there is a, uh, 
amillennialist, a postmillennialist, a dispensational premillennialist, and a historic premillennialist, all arguing their positions in this book. And then when they, when they lay forth their position, all the other three writers write a rebuttal to their position for all four positions. So it's very helpful. The Meaning of the Millennium, Four Views by Klaus. Okay? This is a really good one. It's very, very uh, 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 helpful and insightful. Let's see. The Blessed Hope. I gave you this earlier in the year. I don't know if we still have any available or not, but uh, if you're at all concerned about understanding the rapture and the second coming, I think you need to read this book. Um, in my mind, it's very clear, it's very concise, it's, it's very biblical, and uh, this, if you will, is the reason, um, uh, I'm sorry, this for me was the first work that I saw that clarified what I thought was a biblical position on the rapture and the second coming. Uh, before I had not previously read something that was so clear and concise. So, if you will, this guy articulates my position almost exactly. The only difference I would have with him would be on the distinction between the church and Israel. He's a little more covenantal than I prefer. I kind of lean more toward with the dispensationalists on that. George Eldon Ladd. Okay. He's also the author of a, of a New Testament theology text that is very popular among conservative evangelical seminaries. Uh, he's a New Testament guy. John MacArthur, The Second Coming. Okay, This is a book that describes dispensational premillennialism very well, very clearly, very concisely, and provides ample biblical evidence for that position as well. Okay. John MacArthur, The Second Coming. You may have read that. It's a popular one. Okay. So, I wanted to point those out to you, but then grab your Bible. So, we're going to start diving into these things we talk about all the time. The rapture, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, these are like magnanimous, magnificent, supernatural, cataclysmic events that are in the Bible. Um, and so because of that, the, the nature of this discussion is rather controversial at every point and at every turn. And as you begin to study this, what you find is that the Bible has so much to say about it in so many places and in so many different contexts that some of the things become very difficult to understand. So I'm going to try to help you to understand it by, by having a framework in your mind uh, that comes from the Bible text. But then with that framework, as you begin to see and find other things in the Scripture, you'll be able to kind of see how they relate to the different parts of the framework, okay? But you got to have some way to organize the thought about the rapture, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, and how that relates to it being fulfilled in time and space. You've got to have something to, to, to use as an order or an understanding, and I'm going to suggest that that is the Olivet Discourse. Okay? Jesus answering the question to the disciples, Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Okay? So the Lord goes and gives us the Olivet Discourse. And not only does he do that, but in the Olivet Discourse, he gives us a chronological understanding of events. 
So he says, this will happen, then that will happen, then this will happen, and after that, this will happen, and immediately after that, this will happen, and then when you see that, this will happen. And he's telling you, if you will, in much of that, uh, how things happen chronologically, which is what everybody's always so interested in. All the arguments about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, all of that within premillennialism is an argument about chronology. It's an argument about order of events, okay? But it's an in-house argument. It's like arguing with your mom or your sister or your brother, okay? You don't divorce people because you disagree about the second coming and the timing of the rapture. Are you with me? God forbid that we should even be thinking in those terms. If, 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 if arguing about Scripture brings division, okay, well, it's probably more like anger that's in your heart that's bringing division rather than the text of Scripture. Look, the truth is what the truth is, and we all want to know what it is, but that isn't no reason for us blood-bought believers to have such division over a non-essential issue. Are you with me? And I'm going to be stressing that through these weeks as we go because I think this is a major problem with Christians. You know, we start talking about end times and we have a disagreement over what Scripture says or how we say, I studied this for years and I have this position and how can you say that? And, and, and with the hair stands up on the back of our neck and the fangs come out. And, you know, and uh, that, that's just not godly behavior. You know, you, you're, you're looking through the forest and you can't see the trees. You with me? So, I mean, don't forget your Lord is gracious and loving and kind. And that when you're talking to a fellow believer, that's a blood-bought saint for whom Christ died. They are far more valuable than your understanding about a tertiary issue in Scripture. Your relationship with them is far more valuable okay, than understanding the timing of the rapture. Now, I believe that's a very important thing, and I think we ought to study it, and I think we ought to argue about it, and I think we ought to come to an understanding because it's a difficult thing, and it's a very important thing, okay? But, but listen, that, that doesn't change the love that we have for one another, okay? We are bound together by the blood of Christ, and we need to treat one another accordingly. Would you agree? Amen. Okay. So also with that, I want to let you hold me accountable, okay, when I speak <laughs> arrogantly about things, okay? I have done that in the past, <laughs> and I hope I don't do it in the future, right? And sometimes I make flippant comments that, that really are uncalled for, and I want to apologize ahead of time if I do that. I get excited about these things. These things are exciting, we start talking about Christ coming in the heavens and splitting the sky open and gathering believers off the earth and destroying the wicked. Man, I'm excited about that. I can't wait for that. I live every day in eager expectation of that. It's the most exciting thing in my life is Christ. And I can't wait till he comes again and destroys evil. To me, that's just, it's, just a, a, it's one of the most magnificent things I can imagine. So I get really excited about it, okay? But I don't mean to be arrogant. And uh, so God helped me to be humble instead of being arrogant, okay? Let's see. <clears throat> okay, so I wanted you to get your Bible out and, and open to First Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to get you thinking biblically, 
Okay, here's what I mean by that. We're going to talk about some events that don't only appear right here in 1 Thessalonians. They appear also in 2 Thessalonians. They appear in Colossians, in Philippians, in Revelation, in uh, 2 Timothy, in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, in Luke 21, in Luke 17, in Luke 13. Okay, all those places talk about the rapture and the second coming. But then you have other passages that talk about the resurrection of the dead, right? Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 20, 20 and following, right? Uh, John chapter 5, Jesus talks about two resurrections, one for the just, one for the unjust, right? These kinds of things that Paul talks about the resurrection again and again, 1 Corinthians 15, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, so many other places in Scripture talk about the resurrection. Well, one of the things that we need to understand is Paul may be talking about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, but what happens is is that the first resurrection, okay, when you study the resurrection of the dead, you find that there's two resurrections. There's the first resurrection, right? And the second resurrection. Where do you see that? Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, makes it very clear that there are two resurrections separated by a thousand years. Okay? But uh, nevertheless, you find that accompanying an understanding of the resurrection is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the first resurrection happens at the second coming of Christ. Are you with me? So one of the features that accompanies the second coming of Christ is the resurrection of the dead. That's what our passage in 1 Thessalonians 4 says. Are you with me? Let's go there. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 and following. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, what are we talking about? Resurrection, right? Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. In other words, God is going to raise up all the, the dead believers in Christ, right? And then he goes on. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So what you find is Paul starts talking about the resurrection of the dead, He's saying, look, I don't want you to be like others who have no hope. Listen, uh, uh, believers who have died are going to be raised again. And not only that, guess what? They're going to be raised again at the parousia, at the coming of the Lord. Okay, that's Paul's point. Resurrection, parousia. Now, you don't only have the understanding of the resurrection, but you understand that at the resurrection, when does the resurrection happen? When Jesus comes again in the clouds. Okay? Not only that, Paul tells us very specifically that the, the living believers who are going to be translated, they're not going to be resurrected, right? They're going to be translated or glorified. They're going to, they're going to be caught up in the air off of the ground, right? But the dead believers are going to be resurrected. Well, so Paul tells us there's an order to that, right? Right? We who are alive certainly shall not what? precede those who are asleep, right? 
For what? The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet them together in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Right? So we, we all of a sudden we have resurrection of the dead tied to the second coming of Christ. At the second coming of Christ, in fact. And we understand that the, the, um, the, this resurrection includes what? Believers. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay? They get raised... And then, after that, we who are alive and remain get caught up to meet them together in the air. So we get this chronology of events. Paul here tells us that there's a chronology in the fact that the resurrection of living of dead believers and the translation of living saints happens in a certain order at the second coming of Christ. Okay, So, all of that I said to tell you this. We see then from from looking at different passages about the resurrection that it's tied very specifically to the second coming of Christ. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us, for example, that the first resurrection happens at the second coming of Christ. Therefore, you must bear in mind when you're looking at passages that talk about the second coming of Christ that that's also the time when the resurrection, the first resurrection, happens. And not only that, it's accompanied by a translation of living believers, which we commonly call the rapture. Okay? I'm going to refer to it as the rapture again and again and again. What I don't want you to think is that I mean a secret rapture because I'm not, I don't believe in a secret rapture. Okay? I'm just telling you this up front. I believe in a post-tribulational rapture. So in other words... I don't think that Christ will come before the tribulation and rapture the church and then come after the tribulation at his second coming. I don't see two comings. I see one coming, okay? However, I am going to explain to you in a detailed way what dispensational premillennialism teaches about that, pre-tribulational rapturism, and why. I'm going to give you a biblical defense for that as well because I want you to be informed. I think it's important for you to understand However, when I say rapture, I don't mean secret rapture, okay? When I say rapture, I mean rapture for everybody to see, the whole world, every eye, okay? That's what I mean. So that's probably going to provoke a bunch of questions, and I'm going to start giving you chances to ask questions too, so write those down. I promise we'll have some Q&A here. But uh, so my point is, now all of a sudden we're talking about resurrection, and we're tied to the second coming, and now we read Paul's passage, and we have this thing of translation of living believers. Now we have the thing of the rapture mixed in, right? So what I'm suggesting is when you're reading in another passage of text in Matthew or in the Old Testament or in Revelation, talking about the second coming, you have to understand these things happen at the second coming, whether that context bears it out or not. Are you with me? What I'm saying is, is all these passages are related in some sense or in some way, and our challenge is to understand how they're related and, and to not uh, allow presuppositional thinking that we have to define what the text of Scripture clearly says, but to let the text of Scripture show us how to tie those events together. Nevertheless, it's important if you want to understand these things to understand all the different passages of Scripture that talk about them and the contexts in which they are speaking about them. You follow me? So my point is this. 
Um, here, Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead and how that's tied specifically to the second coming of Christ. Well, there may be another passage in the scripture that's talking about the second coming of Christ without reference to the resurrection of the dead at all. For example, in 2 Timothy, right? Paul, Paul there says, talks about the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior and talks about it as our blessed hope. But there he's not giving any instruction about the resurrection of the dead. He's just referring to that as our blessed hope. And, and he's pointing with eager expectation to that thing that we ought to hold uh, uh, dearly, right? Uh, and so in that context, he talks about the second coming, but he doesn't talk about the resurrection. Well, does that mean that the resurrection doesn't happen at the second coming? No, of course not. Why? Well, because we know here <laughs> at the second coming, the resurrection happens. Are you with me? Okay. So what I'm getting at is that it's important to understand all the different passages in their context. And once you have that, then you can begin to compare what they're saying and you can begin to understand. Well, just in the books of First and Second Thessalonians alone, Paul says a lot about this because there was some confusion among the Thessalonian believers. So along with the passage I just read where he's talking about the resurrection, then he talks about the Lord actually descending from heaven, and he gives these features of his second coming. Look at these features. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Right? And so here he's talking about the second coming and he adds these features. Look what's happening. Trumpets, angels, right? Archangel here. Right? <laughs> and then he says the dead in Christ will rise first. Right? Well, <clears throat> he goes on. And in verse, I'm, cha- I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he equates now the second coming with the idea or the concept of the day of the Lord. Okay? So now we have another biblical term or set of terms, the day of the Lord, which Paul ties the second coming to that. Look at verse 5, uh, 1 and following. Now as to the times and echops, epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know fully well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. And so here he's talking about now, first he's talking about the resurrection and the second coming, and now he's saying, Look, as far as the timing of this thing, you and I both know, none of us know exactly when it's going to happen. That's what he's saying, right? But then he says, but he says, for you yourselves uh, full, know full well that the day of the Lord. See, now he's saying that this second coming, this day of the Lord, he calls it, will come like a thief in the night. So he's giving us all this information. What's he saying? Well, he's saying, we don't know exactly when it's going to be, right? Not only that, but it's the day of the Lord. Well, why is that significant? Because there's passages all over the scripture that talk about the day of the Lord, right? I mean, they're in Joel, they're in Isaiah, they're in uh, <clears throat> Revelation, they're here in First and Second Thessalonians, right? They're, they're in other places as well. In Isaiah alone, it appears in what? Five different chapters. The idea or the concept of the day of the Lord. And not only that, but when Isaiah is talking about it, 
he, he, in chapter 1 and 2, he's talking about the day of the Lord in a, in a certain kind of a context. But then in chapter 13, he's talking about it in a whole different kind of a context. And so each time he's adding features and he's expressing and explaining what it's like. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that all of a sudden, all of these biblical events start being tied together. Okay? And that it's important for you to know those passages of Scripture. You know, don't just familiarize yourself with 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 and think you know everything about the rapture and the second coming. You don't. There's so much more to know, right? Which is why it's so controversial. So if you're particularly interested in knowing about these things and knowing well, I'm suggesting that the best possible thing you can do is to memorize the passages of Scripture that talk about these things in various places, so that in your mind's eye, you have an understanding of all of the biblical content about those things. And I also want to say to you, that's not that hard to do. (coughs) That's not that hard to do. I can quote to you almost all of the passages that deal with the rapture and the second coming, just without my Bible open. Because I've, I've studied it long enough and I'm familiar with those texts of Scripture, at least if I can't quote it verbatim, I can quote it real close, okay? And, and, and you know what? I, I haven't spent that much time studying it. I mean, I've spent a lot of time studying it, but, but quite frankly, family, we have nothing but time. I don't know about you, but I like to spend my time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, and trying to understand it. You with me? So I'm just saying, your, your best way to get a complete and full understanding of this is to know what Scripture says and know what it says in its context. Okay, don't just take some little sound bite out of some scripture over here and stick it over here with this piece and say, see, (laughs) okay, it doesn't work like that. Scripture is defined by its meaning in its context. Okay, and that's extremely important to understand, especially in this debate. I don't know if you ever talk with people about the second coming, man, but they're and they'll go quoting off scriptures and all of them out of context, and they put it all together, and they have this big old picture, and 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 uh, and and none of it is is using the meaning of the phrases that they use as applied in its context. Are you with me? So that's important too. It's very important for me to tell you all these things ahead of time because we're going to discover a lot here. Okay, so. We started out talking about the resurrection in verses 13, 14, and 15, 16, 17. Then uh, Paul tells us that there's also going to be a translation of living believers. He gives us these features of the second coming and the clouds caught up together in the air. Then now he's equating that with the day of the Lord, right? Then he goes on in verses in verse 3, he says the unbelievers, guess what? They're going to be unaware. These things are going to happen. It's going to be like a thief in the night. They won't even know what's happening. When they're thinking peace and safety, sudden destruction will come upon them. That's what Paul says. But in contrast to that, believers, verses 4 and following, what? But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. What's he saying? Unbelievers are going to be completely unaware that this thing is happening. You Christians, you're going to have a good sense of just about when it's going to be. You're going to be eagerly looking forward to it. It's not going to overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you're going to know at what time of the night the thief is coming. Are you with me? That's his point. 
It doesn't mean you know the day or the hour, right? But you know how to interpret the season. Are you with me? Well, so there's this whole, and more features here. Unbelievers are unaware. Believers are aware, right? To some level or degree. Well, he goes on. Um, There's a warning here in verses uh, 7 and following about being drunk. He says, he says, don't be drunk. We're sober. We're not children of the night, right? Interesting enough, this is a feature in Jesus' teaching about the second coming. Jesus warns believers, don't be drunk when I come. Don't, don't lose your control and start eating and drinking and losing your sense of awareness and your sense of alertness and be caught unawares because you don't know when I'm coming. Okay, and so there's these these warnings to holiness, to alertness, to uh, attentiveness, to paying attention, to being busy with the master's work. These are features in Jesus' teaching as well. Okay, and so the point is, is that he he goes on. Uh, he talks a little bit more about it. Verse nine, he says, "For God has not destined us for wrath." Key feature here. Look, Christ is coming again, and He is not going to allow believers to suffer wrath. Okay, that's what the scripture says. We are not appointed unto wrath, but to salvation. Christ didn't save us to destroy us. Amen? Amen. He saved us to give us life. Believers are not going to endure the wrath of God, period. It's not going to happen. Okay, we'll talk more about that. But, you know, as you're reading through this passage, you see all these features that are tied to the second coming. Okay, well, flip over to 2 Thessalonians. Now, we have another letter that's written at another time to answer another set of specific questions that they had after they got Paul's first letter. So they got Paul's first letter, and they read through that, and they thought, wow, that really clears up a lot of things. But you know what? You opened up a can of worms, Paul. What about this, that, and the other? And, you know, and of course, they were, they were, they were suffering tremendous affliction, as you well know. And, you know, their concern was, what is this? Is the wrath of God come upon us? Is the day of the Lord God in here? Why are we dying? Why are we per- being persecuted? What is happening here? And, and, and so Paul has to kind of write again, and he has to explain. And right in chapter 1, man, right off the bat, pow, verse 7, he's talking about how Christ is going to come and give relief to their suffering and their affliction, and he comforts them again with the thoughts of the second coming of Christ. He's saying, look, you're suffering now, but don't worry. The Lord is coming, okay? But in this context, he's, he's not talking about the resurrection of the dead. In this context, he's talking about the destruction of the wicked persecutors who are persecuting them, okay? Look what he says, verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. So now he talks about the second coming. But it's not in the context of the resurrection of the dead or the translation of living believers. 
He does mention that in verse 10, okay? But, but that's not the context or the point of his passage here. What's his point? His point is explaining how when Christ comes, he's going to give them relief by destroying the wicked and judging them, okay? Now it's a new context. However, it's the same coming. Are you with me? So now we have another passage talking about the second coming, but the whole context of the argument is different. He's talking about other features here. The features here have to do with how Christ will respond to the wicked and unbelieving, right? And then, of course, in verses, uh, verse 10, we have statements about the believing and what will happen with them. They will be glorified on that day, and they will marvel at Christ, okay? But the unbelieving, what about them? Man, good night. To those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those are some of the most frightening words in all the Bible. Are you with me? But here's my point, okay? First Thessalonians 4, 15-17, we have discussion about the rapture, the second coming, the resurrection of the dead. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, we have a discussion about the second coming and the judgment of the wicked. It's a whole new context, okay? But it doesn't end there. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Now he's going to bring up the whole issue about the same thing he talked about back in chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. He's going to talk about the second coming, but now he's going to talk about it in relation to the resurrection of the dead and the rapture, Okay? But now he's going to tie a new feature. Now he's going to talk about apostasy, and he's going to talk about the Antichrist. Okay? Slightly different context here where he's going to talk about these things. But nevertheless, he's addressing the resurrection of the dead, the rapture, the second coming of Christ, the, the great apostasy that happens just prior to that, and the coming of the Antichrist. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 and following. Now we request... You, brethren, with regard to what? The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. What does that sound like? Sounds like 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, doesn't it? Okay, what does he say? That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the what? The day, there he is, equating the second coming to the day of the Lord again. You see that? That the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Okay, so now he's talking about the coming of our Lord, our gathering to him. He calls it the day of the Lord, and he gives us what? Chronology. What's he say? That day will not come until what? Until the apostasy occurs and the man of lawlessness be revealed. Okay, so now now we have more features to add to our complexity of understanding the second coming. What? Well, he's going to judge the wicked. He's, he's going to... Uh, he's going to show up and, and he's going to uh, gather us all together. But before that happens, there's going to be a what? An apostasy. Greek word here, apostasia. Turning away from the true faith. There's going to be an apostasy first. 
Right? And then what? A revealing of the man of lawlessness. Now there's a discussion about the Antichrist. Now what's this all about? What's this Antichrist thing? Okay, now I got this Antichrist thing, but Paul, you only gave me one verse. Well, no, he goes on, right? He goes on and he talks about the Antichrist all the way through verse 12. Um, But the point I'm making here is, family, you know, you can't just go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 and say, this is, this is the teaching of the rapture. We're done. Okay, because there's all these scriptures that tie all these things together. And we need to understand their relationship to one another in order to have a full-orbed understanding of the second coming, of the resurrection of the dead, of how those things happen, okay? But this is just First and Second Thessalonians. We haven't even gotten out of these two Pauline letters. Are you with me? So, on top of that, we have passages that talk about the rapture and the second coming explicitly from other authors. Jesus teaches about these things. We're going to go over that. John writes about these things in Revelation. Revelation 19, at the end of Revelation 19, is pictured the second coming of Christ. And and the events that directly come right after that are listed in Revelation chapter 20, where Satan is bound for a thousand years, and and uh, there is a resurrection there. Okay, and and uh, that's where we learn that uh, there are two resurrections that are separated by a thousand years. That's where we learn there's a thousand year millennium. Now what happens? Well, we go look over there. We start studying the rapture and the second coming. Guess what? There's an antichrist and a false prophet who gets thrown in the lake of fire. Then Satan gets bound with a great chain for a thousand years. Christ establishes an earthly rule on his throne, and he rules on earth for a thousand years. And those who are resurrected reign with him for a thousand years. And then at the end of that, there's a, a final rebellion of nations on the earth who come to make war against the Lord, and he destroys them, right? And then there's a great white throne judgment and the destruction of the heavens and the earth. I mean, all of these things are all tied to the second coming in Revelation 19 and 20. So when you read about the second coming in 1 Thessalonians, you don't get all that data. Paul doesn't tell you about the millennium, does he? Doesn't mean there isn't a millennium at the second coming. Let me tell you, there's a millennium at the second coming. Okay? If you're a premillennialist, there is. That's a joke. You're supposed to laugh. You did. That's a good one. <laughs> The reason why is because there's going to be a millennium whether you're a premillennialist or not. That's what a premillennialist will tell you. <laughs> so the point is just that it's going to happen the way it happens regardless of what you think about it. You understand what I'm saying? Your thought, your understanding, your consideration, your study may lead you to an understanding of the truth. But regardless of that, it is going to be what it is going to be. Okay? So, why am I telling you all this? Am I trying to throw you into confusion? No. No. I'm trying to give you tools to understand that you can't just look at the context of First Thessalonians and get a full-orbed view of the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the rapture, and all the events that attend that. Okay? You have to understand the other sections of Scripture. That's why I gave them to you on a piece of paper and said, go study these and learn these and read them again and again and again. 
Okay, and I want to encourage you to do that more and more because I'm going to be cruising through this teaching. And when I get between the books, I'm going to talk about a lot of things. I'm going to talk about these charts. I'm going to talk about eschatology and its whole, not out of the context of First Thessalonians. Okay, I'm not just going to deal with this text. I promised you I would deal with eschatology in between the two books. Hopefully, I'm going to do that at the end of this year. But the point is just that... Um, the end of this year for me is like April and May. Okay, that's what I mean by that. Um, so my, my point is just that you got to have an understanding of these other passages of Scripture because I'm going to be cruising along and making reference to things. Like if I say to you the day of the Lord, I want you to understand what that is. Okay, and it doesn't take much reading to figure that out. Yeah, Joe? Uh-huh. You go down a couple of verses to verse 4, so that this day with a capital D. What's the difference between the small D and the capital D? Well, in my Bible, the 4, on verse 4, the D, the D is a small D. What you reading there? Is that New King James? Yeah. Um, I think that's significant, brother. I will try to address that for you, okay? Small D, big D. Verse verse two, First Thessalonians five, verse two and verse four. The day of the Lord is spoken of. uh, The day in verse two is a small d in his Bible, and in verse four it's a big d in his Bible. Okay. So, everybody follow. Interesting little detail, right? I'm telling you, it's significant in this in this discussion. That's the kind of thing you find out when you start studying these things. There's like, there's like 1,400 rabbit trails you got to go chase to figure it all out, okay? I'm going to help you with that, so you won't have to chase all 1,400, maybe 1,390 or so. But uh, <clears throat> don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged that there's a lot to this. Okay, look, I'll give you information overload for the next two months. And then you'll have all year long to ponder it and read and study and go read books and learn some more. And then when this year's done, guess what? You've got next year, if the Lord tarries. And you can read and study. And okay, That's how it's been going for me. Okay, I heard about these things when I was a young Christian. I've been studying them ever since. And I know a lot more about it now than I did before. So don't get discouraged. You know, There's a lot to it, but we have nothing but time. And you, if you're like me, you got four or five different Bibles. And you, so you got plenty of Bibles and plenty of time. You with me? Okay. We have eternity. Yes, we do. Okay. So a couple more things I've got to say here. Okay. Um, things that happen at the second coming. I want to give you a tool so that when you're talking to people about the second coming, you won't make a fatal mistake. I'm sorry. You won't make a serious mistake in interpretation. Okay? You'll always hear people say things like this. When Jesus comes, he's going to do this. Or when Jesus comes, he's going to do that. Or at the second coming, this happens. Or at the second coming, that happens. And then when they do that, they're typically being reductionistic. You remember that term? So I'll give you an example. Well, man, I'm reading 1 Thessalonians 4. And let me tell you something. When Jesus comes, he's going to raise the dead. Right? 
and uh, and 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 uh, that that's what he does when Jesus comes. He raises the dead, man. So don't tell me about this millennium thing, and don't tell me about this destroying the wicked thing and all of that, because I read my Bible. You know what it says? When Jesus comes, he raises the dead. Well, that's silly. Of course, he raises the dead when he comes, but that ain't all he does. But if you were just reading First Thessalonians, you might be thinking that. Are you with me? So, listen. There are so many things that can be said about when Jesus comes. I want you. To, I want to open up your mind to think about this like the Bible thinks about it. I'll give you the perfect example. In the Scripture, we have the event called the Day of the Lord. In the day of the Lord, what happens? Well, if you go read Isaiah and Joel and other places, guess what? God destroys the world. Zephaniah, man. Zephaniah chapter 1. Go read that. Go read that. Write this down. Go read Zephaniah chapter 1 about the day of the Lord. Behold, verse 3, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Man and beast, I will sweep it away from the face of the earth. That's what happens on the day of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, he says, verse 15, the whole world will be consumed and I will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Zephaniah 1.15. Okay? So, the day of the Lord, it's this thing where God destroys the whole heavens and the earth. Peter talks about it in 2 Second Peter chapter 3. He says the elements will melt with fervent heat and the present heaven and earth will be destroyed by fire. Right? Well, when does that happen? At the second coming. That's when it happens. Well, how do you know that? Well, because Paul tells us when, the, when, the, when, the, when Jesus comes again, that's the day of the Lord. Really? Well, okay, so here's where this gets confusing. But this is what I'm trying to teach you. You got the cross, you're going along in time, right? Over here, you're going to have a millennium, thousand years. Right? Jesus is going to come right here. Right? If you're a pre-tribber, he comes right here and raptures the church. And then seven years after that, he comes. and Second coming. Glorious second coming. Right here. Right? Okay, so what happens then? Well, the resurrection of the dead, millennial kingdom, destruction of the wicked, day of the Lord, destruction of the current heavens and earth. No. No. Here, let me tell you. Jesus is going to come again, establish his kingdom, and then that's going to set in order an unfolding of a whole series of events in Scripture. Okay? One of which is the destruction of the earth that is prophesied about the day of the Lord. But that doesn't actually happen in time and space until the end of the thousand years. Where do I get that? Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. Okay, at this time, Christ destroys the whole heavens and the earth, and he brings all of the wicked dead before his throne in judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. And I saw a great white throne in him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled. Okay, and then right after that, chapter 21, Revelation, first verse, man. And I saw a new heavens and a new earth because the former heavens and former earth had passed away. Okay? You with me? So here's what I'm saying. What's going to happen at the second coming of Christ? Well, Jesus is going to destroy the world. True. But not till a thousand years goes by. You follow me? 
not only that, it gets even more complex because this whole time period is spoken of in Scripture, this thousand years, as the day of the Lord. In some contexts, all right, it's talking about this destruction of the whole heavens and earth that happens at the end of the thousand years. In other contexts, it's talking about this whole time period. Okay? In other contexts, it's talking about things that Jesus does right here when he first comes. I'm going to point that out to you. I'm going to show you that in Scripture. But here's what I'm trying to, this tool I want to give you is, when people say at the second coming this is going to happen or that's going to happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen immediately at the second coming. For example, Jesus is going to set up an earthly throne in Jerusalem, and he's going to reign as king over the whole earth, and he's going to discipline the nations. Okay, where do I get that? Zechariah chapter 14, Revelation chapter 20. But that's not the first order of business. Okay, there's going to be a whole cleansing of the land and cleansing of the, of the city. And, and, you know, they're going to, this thing's going to be a mess. Listen, when Jesus comes back, <laughs> uh, the, the place is going to be a mess. He's going to have earthquakes and stuff going on. Man, he's going to be tearing down rulers and principalities and authorities. And it is not going to be pretty. You read in Revelation chapter 16, right? The seven bulls of God's wrath. The sea is turned to blood. Man, hailstones, 100 pounds falling out of heaven, killing people, dead bodies everywhere. The Old Testament is full of language. It says that those slain by the Lord will be everywhere. Okay? It's going to be a mess. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to clean the place up. That's going to take some time. Okay? There's a whole series of events that are going to take place right in there when Christ comes back things that are spoken of in scripture well that doesn't mean that on the day he comes back they're cleaning up dead bodies you with me it doesn't mean that on the day he comes back he's sitting on his glorious throne in jerusalem and he's judging the nations that's going to happen it's going to happen real soon when he comes back but it's not the first order of business first order of business is to rapture the church and throw the antichrist in hell okay but nevertheless, my point is just that all those things happen at the second coming. They don't just happen immediately. Okay? So when you think about things that are going to happen at the second coming, don't just think in terms of it all has to happen on the selfsame day that the Lord returns. It's not like that. Okay? And, and if you want to uh, present some information that would cause me to think more about that, I'm, I'm happy to receive that. Let's see. So... I have time for a couple of questions, and uh, hopefully I whet your appetite enough to start really thinking about the passages of Scripture that we're dealing with here and the ones that relate to it. Connie? Matthew 27:52. Uh-huh, yeah, the resurrection of dead bodies at the cross, at the, at the, uh, when the cross and the resurrection took place. What's your question? Well, I was just wondering, is that just sort of a foreshadowing of I think you I think you could say that. Okay, everybody. She's asking about Matthew chapter twenty seven. Behold, this verse of scripture that you read by fourteen times and never actually stopped to think about what it said. Twenty seven fifty two. This is where Jesus died. And it said, this isn't the resurrection. This is when Jesus died on the cross. 
Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. See that? That's a historical narrative of something that happened on that day when Jesus died. Okay? Her question was, is this a foreshadowing of the resurrection or what is it? Okay? Um, The first thing I want to do is say there's very little in the scripture about this. Very little. You can study all the other passages on the resurrection and, and none of them make reference to this passage specifically. As a matter of fact, to my knowledge, there's no other reference in all of scripture to this passage of scripture right here. So the first thing is I want to plead ignorance and say that as far as the Bible is concerned about this specific event, it doesn't give a whole lot more information except to say that the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So this is a resurrection of sorts. And you ask, is it a foreshadowing of resurrection? I would say yes, absolutely. In whatever context you want to use that word, I think that's a good way to describe it. It's a foreshadowing of, of resurrection. It's, I think it's a testimony of God to the power of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And, and it's a testimony of God that that sacrifice on the cross is what conquered death and hell. That, that it was the sacrifice of Jesus that was the satisfaction of God that was killing men, right? It's God's wrath that is against man that Jesus propitiated and satisfied. And so with this, God is saying, death has been overcome so that people can now live. So I, I suppose we could make a lot of comments about this passage of Scripture, but they would just be comments about our general understanding of resurrection and so on because there isn't any other data in Scripture about this passage. Okay? Anna, you had your hand up next. Yes. Um, you say that there's two different times when, they, when he raises the dead and the living. Are those... What's the time frame between those? Is it like first the dead raises and then... Nanoseconds. Nanoseconds? That's how I see it. Okay. That's what I thought. Everybody understand her question? Mm-hmm. She's referring to First Thessalonians 4 where it says... Uh, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the shout of an angel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. She's asking how much time between the dead saints being raised and the living saints being translated, my understanding is nanoseconds. So the Lord comes back, the dead are raised and caught up with him. Immediately after that, the living saints are caught up. Uh, let's see, Joe. Uh, well, you. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't say all. No. Just as many. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's definitely not all. It's just many. If it were all, <laughs> man, the streets of Jerusalem would have been full. Because I mean, you understand the saints. That's the faithful throughout the ages, the church of old, as some would say, right? Okay. Uh, Bonnie? You just defined the day of the Lord in three different time frames. Do all the different priesthoods, which are the closest to us, do they all translate that 
Here is a great question. <clears throat> Depends on which pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath guy you read. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. I, lately, I've been reading a lot of dispensationalism, dispensational guys. I really want to make sure I understand it inside and out. And uh, here's what I find. Among dispensationalists, they, they all have slightly different views on different things all, all the way through. You know, although their position is very, it's very codified in the, in the gen, in the, in most of the major issues. When you start talking about one specific thing, like for example, the day of the Lord and, and how that works out, um, do they all have that same view? And I'm going to say it depends on which one you read. However, um, I also want to say yes, because the text of scripture makes that amply clear. In other words, I'll present this to you and I'll show you how the scripture does this. But the fact of the matter is that the scripture itself talks about the day of the Lord in these ways. Okay? And I'll show you what I mean. In one place, it's talking about the heavens and the earth being destroyed. In another place, it's talking about us being gathered to Christ on that day. We just read that passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But in another place, they're talking about it as where people are beating their swords into plowshares. And the earth is full of peace and prosperity. Okay, so the way I talk about that is on this thing I gave you, premillennialism. I'm sorry, i got to stop here. But you look at the thousand-year millennium. On both sides of that, in the beginning, it says the day of the Lord inaugurated. And then at the end, it says the day of the Lord consummated. You understand? So I'm saying it's all one thing. I'm just saying it's not just one single day. It's an age. But it begins on a single day. It begins on a single day, and it ends on a single day. Okay? I want to make that clear, too. Is that a literal thousand years, as we know a year? Absolutely. If you're a premillennialist. That's the whole argument between premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. Is it a literal thousand years? And, of course, the answer is yes, of course it is. Why? Because the Bible said a thousand years. How many years is a thousand years, uh, LaDonna? Thousand, see? Told you. Okay, let's pray. Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we, we are just marveling at all the things your word says about your second coming. How glorious it's going to be when you bring this world to the next stage in your plan of redemption. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, to see and to study and to long for that day. Lord, I pray that none of us would be distracted by this so that we miss the priorities of today. May we love you with everything that is within us, and may we love our neighbor as ourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.